life. The most important thing in life, the greatest need of our lives is to worship at the feet of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the great end to which all of history is moving, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, the, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, hello and welcome to Grace Maribel Weekly, which is a sermon podcast ministry of the Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you're about to hear is titled, The King is Worshipped. Pastor Chris Reiser will be teaching us from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A common theme throughout the book of Matthew is that Jesus is, in fact, the promised King and Messiah. And if that is true, then the wisest use of our time will be to worship him. And the worship of Jesus is the very purpose for which history is moving. Matthew introduces us to some wise men who were the first persons to worship this newborn king. But the question is, who do you worship? Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. And I just want to remind you that uh, this morning is the first service, it's the closed service for Crossway Bible Church in Knoxville. So please do be praying for them. And I'll move my microphone here. Please do pray for that, uh, that church as it gets started. Their first open service will be on the 23rd of February, so uh, Greg will be preaching this morning. Isn't it a joy to know that by the Lord's grace, by your hard work and prayers, really, that church has been birthed out of this one, and to know that now the Word of God is going forth in another place, in another part of our city, so to the honor of the Lord. That's a great thing. I hope you'll continue to pray and to just consider their needs, to encourage them as you meet those who are part of that church plant. So Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among all the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Please be seated. Now, what is the most important thing in life? Is it air? Pretty important. Water? Food? Well, how about 
other things that the world sees as most important, things like career, family, maybe purpose or meaning. I think even as believers, we sometimes wrestle with, well, what is the most important thing? We know that God is supposed to be most important, but sometimes we wrestle to know how it is that we live that out. Well, the Bible is very clear. What God has said is very clear about the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life, the greatest need of our lives is to worship at the feet of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the great end to which all of history is moving, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, the, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matthew is a book about the king, and so Matthew is a book about worship. And what we see this morning is really the first time the king has been worshipped in our narrative, and it's going to come from a very surprising place at a very surprising time. Now, where we stand in our text already, we've looked at Matthew chapter 1, and we looked at the lineage of the king. That is, he is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And Matthew put together a a well-crafted lineage, a well-crafted genealogy to lay out, really, in many ways, the full scope of God's grace in the line of Christ. We see so many opportunities, so many places in that in that genealogy where God was gracious, where He brought in the Gentiles, where He used those who we would never use, but God does. So we've seen the lineage of the king. We've also seen the birth of the king, that he was born of a virgin, the only virgin birth in the history of the universe and the only one that there ever will be. So He is God and man. He is able then to actually accomplish the work that He set out to do. He can bring redemption because He is fully God and fully man. And we also saw that that birth was according to prophecy. Everything that was written in the Old Testament Scriptures concerning the birth of Christ is, and as we will see even in our text, uh, will, will be answered concerning everything that relates to His birth. God always fulfills His promises, and He does so specifically. He does so in His timing. He does so according to His will. So born of a virgin, born according to prophecy, and then we saw He was born as Emmanuel, God with us. Conceivably, Christ could have come in many forms, I guess, Or He could have come in in, in a different way than He came, and yet He had to be God with us, and He was. It says that He was, His name is to be called Emmanuel. He was necessary for Him to take on human flesh, to come and walk among us. The way God, God set up, the way He designed the entire universe and redemption was such that God Himself took flesh so that He could, in fact, die for us, so that He could, in fact, bear our infirmities. He could, in fact, live a perfect life as a man so that we could have the credit for all that He had done, His righteousness as the God-man. So He was born born, uh, as a king, the lineage of the king and the birth of the king. But what we'll see this morning is the first worship of the king. So we will see the king worshiped. And what I want you to remember from this morning is that the worship of the king of kings is the wisest use of our lives and is the all-consuming purpose towards which history is moving. The worship of the King of Kings is the wisest use of our lives and is the all-consuming purpose towards which history is moving. Let's jump right into our text, chapter 2, verse 1. We have the worshipers arrive because the focus of this entire 12 verses is on the purpose of those who come. There's lots of other things involved here, all kinds of rabbit trails to run down, but the focus here is on the worship of the king and the worshipers themselves because this is stunning. It is stunning. If you were a Jew in the first century, if you had any idea, any concept of the Messiah, the idea that he would be worshipped in this way by these people is totally, it's totally off the charts of what would, what would be expected. 
So the worshipers arrive. Let's see who they are. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, so the worshipers arrive. We need a little background here, right? Uh, first, it says, you know, these, these magi, and it talks about their arrival. Well, why is Matthew even writing this? Why does he move right from essentially the very simple narrative of Jesus' conception, right? It really, in verses 24 and 25, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, as did the angel, uh, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. Now, we don't know yet where he was born. We don't know any of the circumstances really around it. We know all of that from Luke. We don't know that in Matthew's narrative. So really, this, this is written to establish for us the rest of the prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus. Again, you already know he was born in Bethlehem, but we haven't heard that yet in our text. So here we have it. Matthew introduces it to us. The story of the wise men, or these magi, provides the rationale for the flight into Egypt, all right, which is also according to prophecy, and then really even moving back to Galilee. This, this historical narrative demonstrates Jesus' lack of, accept of acceptance by his own people, which is a theme that runs all the way throughout the book of Matthew, that he was rejected by his own people, the Jews, Israel. It demonstrates Jesus' right to rule and reign on the throne of David. All nations bow and worship him. We have the first sign of that here. And chapter 1 showed us that Jesus deserves honor as the king in the line of David. And chapter 2 shows how he begins to receive that worship. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and notice Bethlehem of Judea, not Bethlehem of Zebulun. There were several Bethlehems, all right? But this is the one that was prophesied, right? Matthew is making that very specific. And when was this? It says Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Well, we know, and actually it's trying to be, they're trying to change it now. People would now deny that our entire dating system has been based around the birth of Christ, all right? That's, that's a fact. They're trying to change all of that so we don't have to mention any of those things anymore, right? But it's A.D. and B.C., before Christ, and then uh, after the year of our Lord, Adonis Domini. But when was that really? Was Jesus actually born in 0 B.C.? And, or 0, it wouldn't have anything on it, no A.D., no B.C., 0. Well, most likely not. He was most likely born between 4 and 7 B.C., which seems kind of strange. How can you use the dating system that way? But the discrepancy came about as a result of a switch from the Julian to the Gregorian calendars, a misdating of the, day, the death of Herod in the 6th century. Since Herod was actually, actually died in about 4 BC, and since he killed all the babies two years old and under, it makes most sense to date Jesus' birth within about two years of Herod's death. So not the perfect zero, so that kind of skews our calendar, right? But he was born during the time of Herod, and really at the very end of Herod's life. We have that recorded for us, that event recorded for us in history. And, and remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of a census of Caesar, right? It's important, and it's an important purpose for Matthew to demonstrate that Jesus was, in fact, born in this town because it's an essential fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And it will help us understand, right, when so often in the rest of his life, Jesus, it's questioned, well, how can any prophet arise out of Nazareth? How can a prophet come from Galilee? People made, they, they made their acceptance or rejection of Jesus on the basis of where he was born. And Matthew is saying, no, you need to understand. And, and maybe there were some in that first century who still believed that Jesus was just from Nazareth. Remember, they hadn't read the Gospels. So he's making sure that those who, are, who he's calling on to believe in Jesus are believing in a Jesus who was born not in Nazareth or Galilee, but was born in Bethlehem. To us, that's not surprising at all. To them... And to some, they would not have even known that. John 7.41, it talks about this during the life of Christ himself. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? 
didn't even know where he actually came from. So they're going to reject him on the basis of the fact that he didn't fulfill prophecy when he actually did. So Matthew's making very clear. This is the Jesus who came, and he came. It's the right Messiah because he came from Bethlehem. Because John 7.42 says, Has not the Scripture said the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This is not a minor issue. Again, no prophecy is minor. If God makes a prophecy, if it's thus saith the Lord, it had better be right. Otherwise, it's not from God. And if it's written down in Scripture that it is from God and it isn't right, then we're done. Scripture is not, it has, it has no trustworthiness whatsoever. But it does, and Matthew is making that clear. So he, he, he was born in the days of Herod. It was after he was born in Bethlehem that they come. So this, the Magi are coming after that event has already taken place in the days of Herod. Now, if you've read much of the New Testament, you see the name Herod a lot. So you're like, which Herod? There are really four of them. So let me just give you just a very brief overview of Herod's, right? The first is Herod the Great. That's this one. We'll talk about him more in a minute. Then there is a Herod called Herod Antipas. I didn't make up these names. They're in the Bible, right? Herod Antipas, he was the son of Herod the Great. He was the one, he was the Herod that took Herodias to be his wife. John the Baptist condemns him for that, and he kills John the Baptist, right? That's that Herod, the son of Herod the Great, this Herod. Then there is Herod Agrippa Sr., grandson of Herod the Great, killed by God for arrogantly accepting praise as God. That's, that's in Acts 12. He gives a speech, and they say, the voice of a God, not of man. And he says, essentially, yes, and he dies. Right? God says, no, I, I won't have that. God doesn't always do that who, to people who take his, uh, take his glory, but understand that he could at any given moment and be righteous to do so. Well, he did that to Herod Agrippa Sr. Then you have Herod Agrippa Jr., his son. He was the king before whom Paul testified while in prison at Caesarea under Festus. That's in Acts 25, all right? So those are your Herods, the Herodian dynasty, as it were. And this is the first one who kind of kicks off that dynasty. Well, who was he? Right? He's known as the great because he was the most influential and powerful of all the other ones, right? He's the, he's the best Herod, uh, as Herods go, right? He was half Jew and half Idumean. That is, he was an Edomite or a descendant of Esau, right? Jacob and Esau, well, he was only half Jewish or ha half of the line uh, through Jacob, who made shrewd political moves, gained the favor of Rome, and was named king of Judah, or excuse me, king of Judea in 40 BC at the age of 15 years, right? After Herod made every effort to legitimize himself as a genuine king, and that included expanding and remodeling the second temple. He was the one in charge of the temple, which had, been, which had suffered extensive damage and was, was relatively small. He's the one that expanded it. And so when they talked about Herod's temple, that was the expansion of the temple that had been rebuilt after the exile. And Herod was, that was pro probably his pride and joy of what he had done for the people. But all of that, trying to get them to accept him as the Jewish king. But he wasn't fully Jewish. And so he never was fully accepted. Now that's going to play into all that's going on here. He's been working really hard to get everybody to accept him as the king of the Jews, Jewish king. Right? He's, been, he's, he's been working really hard. But he never, that never really happened. He never won Jewish favor. He was regarded by many as a usurper to the throne, of course. He's not the true king of Israel, not the true king of the Jews. He's not even the full Jew. So in his later years, right, as this wears upon him and as he tries desperately to maintain power, he's characterized by fits of rage, stimulated largely by an increasing paranoia concerning possible threats to his person and throne. Right, that's, that's the way he is. That's his mindset as we enter into this text. Right, so that will help you in understanding what's going on. Later in life, he had one of his own wives and his two sons, the sons through her, murdered. He was so insanely cruel that just before his death, he had many important men in Jerusalem put in prison with orders that they be executed on the day of his death so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem. You get it? When he died, everyone was going to rejoice. 
And so he had all these people killed when he died so that everyone would mourn. That's the kind of guy this was. In fact, there was a, a joke in, in history, a play on words made by Caesar Augustus himself. He said he would rather be Herod's pig, and it's a play on, on Greek words, heis is the word, Herod's pig, than his son, huios. It's better to be in the house of Herod as a pig than to be his child because you might live longer as the pig. That's the kind of man Herod was. So that's who we have. He's a murderer, and he murdered his family members, and uh, this is how he's known. So this is the person to whom the Magi arrived. Now, Magi from the East, let's talk a little bit about their identity. All right, so the arrival of the Magi, and this is, remember, the worshipers arrived, their arrival, and now who, who are these Magi? We know them by wise men, sometimes the we three kings of Orient are, all these different things that we use. Well, Magi is the term used here, so let's try to flesh that out a bit. Right? It generally comes from a, a Persian word, which means great. They were, and generally, the high priestly caste of Persia. That is pagan priests. That was where, that's where they come from. Right? They are priests and wise men among the Medes, Persians, and Babylonians. And of course, you met these guys, if you read the Old Testament, you met them in Daniel. Right? You saw them there. And as we find out, they're called wise men there, but they never seem to be very wise. They can't ever get anything right. Now, that is the great irony, by the way, just to jump ahead in this passage. These wise men much later on down the line, finally get something right. right we're going to see that they finally finally are wise. They, everywhere else in Scripture, they don't appear to be very wise. Right? So they're the Magi. Uh, also, there was, there was a, the Magian religion. That might be where the actual term comes from. That is kind of a, a magician or sorcerer, one who uses witchcraft, magic arts. They were associated with astronomy. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that astronomy back in, in those times was mostly astrology. Right? They didn't have a lot of ways to view the stars and things. So they kind of made things up, and then it was all tied to kind of mystical, religious t- sorts of things. Right Now, you need to understand then that it would, it's with some, it would be unwise of Matthew to introduce magi if these weren't actually magi, if they didn't actually exist. It's not something you would make up as some kind of myth, because any Jewish reader would go, magi? What are they doing here? Who cares about magi? These are pagans. Right? The pagan, pagan, they lead pagan religions. Also, now, what happened is because of their combined knowledge of science and agriculture, math and history and the occult, religious and political activities, they were, were essentially the most powerful group of, of advisors in Medo-Persia in the Babylonian Empire, as you see if you read the book of Daniel. And then they maintained a lot of power all the way down through those dynasties, even as those dynasties began to fade. Right? Historians tell us that no person was ever able to become king without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi and being approved by them, which is why they're sometimes called kingmakers. They were the ones that worked behind the throne, and you had to get their approval before you could become a king in Medo-Persia or in, or in Babylon. Right? Now, we understand, and this, I think, ties into our understanding of this narrative, is that Daniel became chief of the wise men during his time in Babylon. Right? His high position and his great respect from them, as well as then the legacy that he left, seems to at least tie into the fact that they are aware of a king of the Jews as well as then the Hebrew Scriptures, which, remember, Daniel read and had copies of because he read the prophecies of Jeremiah, was praying that, that they would return from exile. So apparently the Scriptures were left, and the legacy that Daniel had was left, which seems to be the reason that these magi are aware of a king of the Jews. We'll talk more about that. And remember, God is, what amazing sovereignty. He's, he's planting by taking Daniel into Babylon and, and, and elevating him to the head of the Magi or, or the wise men there. He's already planting the seeds of the first worshipers of Christ. This is, I mean, it's mind-blowing. And leaving the Scriptures there as well. You never know what God is doing. Who would have thought that Daniel being carried away into captivity besides, you know, 
knowing from Scripture what a blessing that was, that it, would, that it would later, these hundreds of years later, that it would bear fruit in an amazing way. Now, by the way, it, it doesn't tell us how many. It doesn't say, right now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, three magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And they were little fat guys with crowns on their head and gifts. And they, they drove camels. You know, it doesn't say any of that. It just says the magi. We don't know how many. Now, there were three gifts granted. But the three gifts are simply representative of the richness and wealth that they brought with them. It doesn't mean there was one for each gift. And I, I would nearly guarantee you this, although the text does not tell us directly, that it wasn't just three of them. This is a long way. They probably traveled about 900 miles. Now, there's some dispute that they even came from the east. I think the text indicates pretty clearly that is actually where they came from. Some say just, you know, they were eastern. Uh, that was their mindset. No, I, they came from the east. And probably about 900 miles. And so, and these were, they were carrying what? <clears throat> Gold and frankincense. And myrrh, very valuable treasures. And so they didn't come themselves. They probably brought their army. So at least they brought some, some protection as well as all the other entourage that had to make the food and do the things that they needed. So this entourage of who knows how many magi, plus probably at least some of their army and, and, you know, and the cooks and everything that would come with that, all of a sudden descends upon Jerusalem saying, what? Where is the king of the Jews? You couldn't have said anything more incendiary at any time than those words. And they're wandering, it appears, they're wandering through Jerusalem, kind of like knocking on doors, maybe, where's the king? It seems that their expectation was, since they had heard about or they knew about the king of the Jews, and we'll talk about how they knew that in a minute, that Jerusalem would be the place, which also indicates to us that the star, whatever that was, did not take them to Jerusalem. They saw the star in the east, and they said, if there's going to be a king of the Jews, where is he going to be born? Jerusalem, that's the capital. So they go to Jerusalem. They had good maps. They could get there, right? These weren't dummies. So they made it to Jerusalem. They show up there, but there's no king, that, no new king, no recently born king. There's just this old king, Herod. And there's no expectation. Now, remember, there was a general messianic expectation during this time. And so the people were heightened in their expectation of a Messiah, but there wasn't any Messiah yet. So they show up trying to find out, well, if he was born, somebody ought to know about this. So they're walking around. You know, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? By the way, it took quite a commitment for these magi to come. We're going to see this all throughout, that these men, it appears from our text, were true believers in God. That's why they came, and that's why they worshiped. And so to pack up and come and do all of these things, more commitment than sometimes we're even willing to do. We have a hard time showing up on Sunday mornings. We right? have a hard time do, you know, worshiping at all. Well, these guys are coming 900 miles, you know, braving all the stuff that they had to do to do what? With one focus, worship. And I will tell you this, that when your focus is, in fact, worship, when you understand the king of kings, then you will go through all kinds of difficulties to get there. There's going to be few things that keep you from the worship of the King of Kings. Well, nothing kept these guys from it. 900 miles of travel, however long it might have been, all the things that would go along with that, and they show up in Jerusalem. Now let's look at the worshippers' search. We had the worshippers' arrival, now the worshippers' search. When the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they were most likely puzzled not to find the city in an uproar over their new king. However, they didn't give up. They began a search of the city, and they asked for information. So this is their question. Where is he who has been born? They assumed that this was a fact. Nowhere are they saying, has there been a king born? Notice they do not ask that question. Was a king born? No. Where is he who has been born? Where's the king? We know he was born. Where is he? Okay, we know he's here, right? And again, they say the king of the Jews, where is the ruler of the Jewish people? But the construction here 
right, highlights the fact that this is the Jewish king. Where's the real king? Where's the Jewish king? Now, they don't know Herod's background, most likely. So they probably don't know all that they're stepping into when they do this. Remember, his whole problem is he's not fully Jewish. And so they want the real Jewish king, and Herod's like, that's not me. And that's pretty, that's going to, for Herod to be pretty challenging because if a real Jew shows up, then do his sons get to be on the throne? No. Even if he can't, of course, he killed most of them. Uh, if he can't, if he can't be on the throne, all right, and then the real Jewish king arises, he's done. And apparently, as we will see, he knows about a Jewish king that's supposed to arise. In fact, he calls him the Messiah. He understands these things. He's apparently a reader of Scripture because he would have been very involved in knowing his people so that he could stay on top of them. All right, so they come asking, implying this king has already been born. He is the king of the Jews. He is a truly Jewish king. We, we've already looked at all of the Old Testament allusions to talk about the Messiah who comes as a king, right? And this was the expectation. So this is not unusual, right? And, and at least it, and biblically, it's not unusual. For Herod, it's quite unusual. So that's their question. And then they talk about their quest. Why are they there? So the question of the Magi now, the quest of the Magi, they said, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. The quest is worship. That's what they want to do. But it says there's this this strange, that we saw a star in the east. What in the world does that mean? Now, there's three different options here. I'm going to present them to you. This is an historical narrative, so it's important that we at least wrestle with this. Are we going to be able to probably flesh it out entirely? No. All right, but uh, I'll give you three options. All right, one would be an actual celestial star, like the stars you look up at night and see. You might be going, well, I mean, we normally read the text. That's the only thing that it could be if it says star. But we'll jump down for a minute and look at verse 9. It says, after... Here in the king, they went their way, and the star which they'd seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. This is very unusual behavior for a star. And as we will see, it doesn't seem to indicate that it just kind of, they were traveling. You know how it kind of looks like you, your kids are in the car, and they say, why is the moon moving? Well, it's not really moving, honey. We're moving. And, and a lot of people read the text this way. They travel, and oh, look, the star is moving along with them. It's not at all what the text indicates, as we'll see if we're at a variety of levels. So this is a very unusual star if it's an actual celestial body. Now, guys, I'm, I'm sorry to cast dispersions, or not really dispersions, but there's all these DVDs out there about how the star that showed up and all these things. Guys, there might have been something that showed up that time that was something else, but was it this particular star? That's going to be difficult because the star shows up again. It leads them to Bethlehem. It stands over the house where the child was. It shines on it. Again, uh, so uh, just a regular, normal star, I'd say that's the, the least likely option. Now, Option number two would be God created a celestial body. God can do that. Some say it's a, a comet or something. Because we can track, it, science does work, and you can look to see where there, co- where there are comets during the time of Christ. Well, Halley's Comet was a little too late. No, a little too early. I think it was 11 B.C. Now, that, that won't work. We know when comets show up around the earth. So you can't just say scientifically, poof, there's a comet. Unless God chooses to make something like that, and he can do that. So I'm not, he, that's, that's entirely his option. So if he created some kind of celestial body that did this, I am fine with that. It just would be very unusual. Not that he could create it, but that it acted very unusual. So he designed it very specifically to do this specific thing and to lead them there. And it doesn't exist anymore. We don't, we don't see this particular star around. So that would be option two. Option three, raised by John MacArthur in his commentary, and seems to be a good option to me, so I'm going to present it to you. Right, is the idea that this might have been, when it talks about star, that we would be taking this as shining brilliance and not the actual celestial body, which, again, seems to be difficult to understand here. Remember, historical, grammatical, contextual interpretation. It's going to be harder to see the celestial body. 
So MacArthur says this, and, and I present it to you as I think what could be a possibility. He says, the Bible doesn't identify or explain the star, and we cannot be dogmatic. Please understand, that's the case. Right? But it may have been the glory of the Lord, the same glory that shone around the shepherds when Jesus' birth was announced by, uh, to them by the angel, because it seems like there's been some kind of announcement here. They don't refer directly to that, but they know this is the king of the Jews. Right? They, there's, they have certain understanding here that you wouldn't necessarily have. So perhaps it was something like that. Throughout the Old Testament, we're told of God's glory being manifested as light, God radiating His presence, His Shekinah glory in the form of ineffable light. The Lord guided the children of Israel through the wilderness by a, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So perhaps it is something more like that, right? Maybe uh, various other Old Testament manifestations of that kind of light. And both the Hebrew and the Greek words for star are also used. They do represent great brilliance or great light. Very early on, even in the Old Testament, the Messiah is spoken of as the star that shall come forth from Jacob, November, or excuse me, Numbers 24. And at the end of the New Testament, he refers to himself as the bright and morning star. So I present that to you as a possibility, those three. Do I know entirely which one it is? No. But I do want you to be careful of somehow demanding that this be an actual celestial body in the sense that we could find that or go back in history. You know, there's some that say it was, it was the constellations that, you know, that, there was a Jupiter and Venus, other things that, that did just the right thing. The problem is, again, those don't go over the house and show it. So if Jupiter shines up just right, or you've got several other you know, celestial bodies that come into just the right configuration, that's not going to help you when it says they appeared again, because apparently it disappeared. Well, thank you again for joining us on Grace Marvel Weekly. Pastor Chris Reiser has introduced us to the first persons to arrive to worship the newborn King Jesus. Their question to the Jews was, where is this newborn King? And their quest was to worship the King and Messiah that they had been taught about by the prophet Daniel. Jesus is the promised Messiah and King. Have you made the decision to worship King Jesus? Join us next time for the conclusion to the sermon titled, The King is Worshipped. If you would like to find out more about Grace Community Church, please visit us at gracemerville.org. There you can find our statement of faith and our distinctives, as well as review our audio and video archive, which includes sermons, Sunday school lessons, and sermons from our many guest speakers at our solo conferences and our essentials conferences. We would love to have you worship with us in person if you're ever in East Tennessee. Our address, phone number, and email information can all be found at gracemerville.org. Join us again soon as Pastor Chris continues in an exegetical look at the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the king, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.